0: Welcome to the I Read Comic Books podcast. I am your host this week, filling in for Mike Rappin. I am Kate Scotchless. I'm here with Tia Vasiliou. Hello.
1: And Nick White. Hey. How have you guys been? Well, um, there have been horrible thunderstorms and uh, <laughs> knocking out power left, right, and center, which Kate, I think you have also been dealing with. So. Oh yeah. You know, perfect time to hole up and read some comic books by candlelight. Well, what have you been reading? This week, I read. Finally, caught up on Saga. I read volume seven. Kate, I know you read that too. Yes, so me too. We so can good. Talk about that in a little while. I also read, surprise, surprise, The Wicked and the Divine 455 <laughs> AD. So um, instead of the usual art by Jamie McKelvey, this was, since it's one of the specials, it's uh, sort of one shot looking at a past pantheon, and those have d- different artists. The last one, the 1831 Romantic Poet episode, episode, issue, had Stephanie Hans, and this one, which takes place at the Sack of Rome, has art by Andre Lima Araujo and uh, Matt Wilson is still on Colors, but it's so neat to see Matt Wilson's Colors in Wictive but with a different artist. Like yeah. It really does have a different feel, which just Matt Wilson for Eisner and President and Nobel Prize and <laughs> all the things. Yes. This is a really manic issue. It's like, <sighs> it's very gory. And in the end of the... L- last arc of the regular series, it was sort of hinted that the gods start to lose their grip on sanity as their two years comes to its end. And in this special, we really see that happen. We really see the the kind of, I don't know, unraveling, I guess, of the gods' ability to kind of still exist as uh, adored members of their culture, basically. And, um, you know, you forget that Kieran writes a lot of Avatar titles, but this will (laughs) remind you that he does. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Let's just put it that way. And anyway, uh, if you're into the Wicked and the Divine, if you're into Roman history... It's a great issue I also read Star Wars Number 31 which is The Screaming Citadel Part 2 and- No spoilers
0: Okay <laughs> I am so
1: excited for this book Well it
2: starts in a galaxy far far away yeah. You've ruined well,
1: listen, it Listen listen What it's about space I'm da- I'm out <laughs> Jason Aaron is writing this one And Salvador LaRoca Is doing the art I loved him on Darth Vader, so I'm pretty happy yes. about that. And yeah, so we're just, you know, c- the continuing saga of Luke and Afra dealing with the queen at the Screaming Citadel, who is really into farm boy Jedi Luke. And, <laughs> you know, oh, dear. I just, I love Afra so much. And we also see more of. Han and Leia and Sana, who is Afra's ex girlfriend, they have to, you know, they 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 just figured out that it's probably a really bad idea for someone as sweet and gullible as Luke to be hanging out with someone as like manipulative <laughs> and morally, I don't know, flexible, questionable, yeah, questionable. yeah. as Afra. So you know, um, in the at the end of this issue, there's the like. Uh, I think it's the cover or in any case some preview for part three which I'm pretty sure is going is like volleying the ball back over to the Dr. Afra series I think it'll be written by Kieran Gowen and uh, yeah Uh, (laughs) it looks like there's a a rescue is going to be attempted I don't know how successful it's going to be but I'm very excited to find out It's awesome.
2: It's interesting that you mentioned that Salvador LaRocca is on Star Wars now. It just made me sort of realize that it feels like the batch of artists that have been working on Star Wars titles seem to be sort of holed off in their own room and sort of rotating from (laughs) book to book. Because if you look, I think think the Darth Maul artist Luke Ross, when he's done with Maul, I think he's the guy who's moving to Darth Vader with Charles Soule.
1: Oh, yeah. And... And then the artist, um, Marco Cicchetto. Cicchetto
2: or Cicchetto, yeah. The guy who did... He did the the cover
1: for for Star Wars 31. And he's, I think, going to be on the Captain Phasma mini.
2: Yeah, and he was just on the... God, what was that? Was that Anakin and Obi-Wan
0: mini? See... I have a theory with all these X Men books where, like, Marvel, do you not know what market oversaturation is? They're like, listen, we put
1: out endless Star Wars books and y'all buy them like crazy. So let's do this with other franchises. They should really push that envelope. They should do like a Jar Jar Binks and C. Right. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
0: Listen,
1: they already have a Groot
0: book, okay? Jar
2: Jar colon gone bomb bad. (laughs) Breaking Bomb Bad with Jar Jar Binks.
0: Oh, my God, Nick. <laughs> Actually,
1: you know what I really need is a, a Padme a- mini. Oh, that'd be so good. It's
0: right? Except we need it to be good and like, not,
1: like, a side note. Well, because you know. the Princess Leia mini was super disappointing. It could have been better. But you know yeah. what? Not having to deal with the, like, piece of toast with a face carved on it that is Natalie Portman, I think they could give Padme a lot more personality. Oh, <laughs> <Aww. laughs> Come on. I'm oh. not wrong. I mean, okay, whoa, whoa, whoa. Has she ever had chemistry with literally if we're gonna, anybody? If we're gonna attack Portman
0: here, I would throw in there, like, she's got, like, I was watching, I don't remember what show, but they brought this up to her, and she's like, she got pissed, and she's like, I, I challenge... Any one of you to read those lines better than I did. No, and like you know, goes and they
1: brought out the script and then the host was trying to read them and he's like, You're right, this is horrific. It's awful. Like, like, I don't blame Natalie Portman in for that role being bad necessarily, but mm-hmm. name a role that she has had since the professional where she's had any chemistry with her co-stars. Yeah, that's that's a tough one. Like, you can't even find a way to have chemistry with Chris Hemsworth and freaking Kat Dennings, the most charismatic people ever Come on, oh,
0: but are you talking about Thor? Because that was such a ridiculous thing again, where the role is just like she meets him and suddenly is heads over heels in love with him, and like, vice versa. Like that you, would be. Have you seen his torso?
1: Like <laughs> six reasons to be have in you love. Seen his torso. Okay, just saying.
2: I read okay. comic books. We're, uh, we're making A-list friends left and right here.
1: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All I'm saying is that I think that one of the one of the most egregious sins. Of the prequels was that I still have no fucking clue why Amidala would have feelings for, um, what's his face if Anakin Anakin little baby Anakin yeah when when you and McGregor is standing right there <laughs> he has a rat tail he's so, out of the picture that makes you invisible they both do they both <laughs> so oh, like that's true give Never us mind. a mini give us a mini and exp- and, and f- give us a reason that's all I'm saying okay call me Marvel fair enough George fair enough we can talk yeah. okay now he's out of the picture <laughs> okay
0: how Moving about you on. Nick <laughs> yeah what did you well, read this week Nick
2: yeah, um, I don't have anything significant to say about uh, Natalie Portman, but uh, I'll leave the window open for. But What for do you have to, to say to
1: th- about Chris Hemsworth's torso? That's, That's right. The real question. <laughs> Talk to us, Twitter. <laughs> yeah,
2: just uh, fill us in. Give us your thoughts. Uh, keep them. Keep them PG thirteen. No.
1: Or,
2: or I guess don't R rated um, only. Okay. All right so that that being said uh, (laughs) (laughs) let's hard hard transition away from those uh rock hard abs um
0: into your books where everyone has rock hard abs (laughs) (laughs) exactly
2: let's talk about batman everyone um (laughs) that's where i use that's my comfort zone for when i get uh yeah unsettled um so i read dark knight a true batman story i've been sitting on this book forever it's written by paul denis it's drawn by eduardo riso It's one of those really daunting books that's just been sitting on my shelf for a while because I know, like, the moment I'm going to sit down and read this, I'm going to need time to, like, fully, absolutely digest it. Uh, And this is the book about Paul Denis, semi-autobiographical, about him working at um, WB Entertainment, WB uh, Animation in the early 90s. uh, He was writing for Tiny Toons, and he was writing for Batman the Animated Series, um, oh my god, I could course, literally
1: sing the Tiny Tunes theme song like right now.
2: Ex- I mean, that's that's just uh, how much it sticks with you. And he actually won, if I, I think I've got this right, he won the writing Emmy for uh, Tiny Tunes. actually. Um, people will be like, it wasn't the Emmy. Yeah, well, I get all of those awards things wrong all of the time, but I think it was the Emmy. Um, but the book largely has to do with the fact that uh, one day he was, I believe, he was coming back from a date, and he was walking, walking home, and uh, he was assaulted and like brutally beaten up, like was in the hospital for a while and sort of um, had to come to terms with the fact that a lot of the material and content he was creating. Um, he was actually like a really big Joker fan and was writing. He was pretty much the guy who was handed all of the Joker episodes and everything. He was having to deal with the fact that now, sort of, his own material was making him like very uncomfortable um, and sort of uh, figuring out how to deal with that and then sort of using Batman as a tool to sort of this persona that, you know, shows up in panels and basically tells him, you know, you've got to you know i guess get back up on your feet and then you know denis is like well i need to get a gun and batman's like no that's not what you need to do are you stupid and then you go into this really interesting story where you find out about denis having this kind of traumatic childhood involving going hunting with his brother and no uh, spoilers. anyway yeah minor spoilers it's not as traumatic as it sounds but it's definitely god I'm all over the place because there's a lot in this book. And on that note, I should say that Eduardo Riso's conventional art style of being very ink heavy. um, Good God, like this book has about six or seven different visual looks and you would not actually think they're all him, but they're him. And it's crazy. Um, His range in this book, if you if you only read this book for his range, it's amazing. But otherwise, read it because it is a super... Um, heartfelt, revealing story um, that has a lot to do with sort of um, finding yourself and sort of defining what contentment and success are um, as a bigger picture. So I read that, and we've talked in the past about how there are some books that really can only be done as OGNs. This book can really only be done as an OGN. Anything else just wouldn't do justice Um, I read The Massive 25 through 30 This is the final arc of The Massive uh, By Brian Wood And art by Gary Brown Uh, The last arc is completely drawn by Gary Brown Uh, It's called Ragnarok And I don't want to say too much about this book Because I really really want people to read this And all I can say is that there's a real Tonal shift in the last two to three arcs of this book And It shifts a bit away from a very well-researched, well-grounded, real-world apocalyptic scenario and turns 90 degrees, I guess you could say. I wouldn't say 180, but it it pivots a bit. And it kind of comes with mixed results towards the end of this book. And that being said, I I still think it's a fantastic series. I think overall it's... um, For a post-apocalyptic tale in this day to stand out as a fantastic one and a great one amongst the just sheer plethora that's out there, I think that's a real testament to this book. And I would really encourage anybody who has an interest in sort of, um, I guess, everything from post-apocalyptic narratives to survival tales to, um, I guess, the application of grounded, semi-grounded science um, and and futurism I, I think that there's a lot here To be appreciated um, I would definitely encourage that uh, I read Batman 17 through 20 This of course is the end Of the King uh, Tom King, David Finch run With Bane I'm not really certain why everyone said The last issue kind of I don't know put a bow on things I don't know uh, I know Kate I thought you were semi-content with this issue i know paul which was one? as well the final issue of the um bane
0: arc Exactly. Oh, yeah how it ties it all back to freaking issue one
2: okay okay with Gotham yeah
0: girl stuff yeah
2: okay yeah 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 no i i guess i sort of saw it as more of just the big overarching plot of batman which is sort of this weird juxtaposition of like one i kind of have this uncomfortable conscious slash subconscious death wish um, alongside this whole idea that you know I'm mortal and confronting mortality and in that regard sort of having to always try to set up a legacy which is sort of a big Batman plot thingy but um, I mean I'll at least agree that it was better than the rest Um, really excited to read the button I now have all the issues of that so check in with me in maybe like a month <laughs> and maybe I'll have that done. Also, I just want you uh, to start a
0: blog. That entitle it uh, "Big Batman Plot Thingy." Yeah, that's your that's your website right there. You're welcome. <laughs> I expect maybe a it's cut.
2: Open. I'll have to look it up. <laughs> that being said, people who like pretty covers, holy cow! The oh, last know, right? one for the button, the last one, which I think is Flash twenty two. Oh my god, that cover is. Gorgeous Wait are you
0: talking about the hologram t- covers Cause that's what I'm the talking about The last one
2: of the lenticular covers Yeah, yeah. The last that's one so the cool. Sort of like a 60's flash look mm-hmm. <gasps> So good So good uh, I, I guess I'll quick say uh, The Divinity 3 tie tie-in, escape from Gulag 396 With Archer and Armstrong Really surprising Really good Biggest pleasant surprise of the whole Divinity 3 thing very heartfelt very earnest uh narrative and um elliot ray hall who wrote the paybacks co-wrote the paybacks mike's favorite book basically um did an amazing job and he needs to be put on archer and armstrong in the future uh and finally tmnt i read volumes one and two i heard about this book for a while um i i wasn't ever like you know baptized in the holy font that was you know the teenage mutant ninja turtles you know growing up and whatnot but i always have fond memories of we want to talk about subversiveness later uh uh my sister and i would always wake <laughs> up early because we were not allowed to watch this show we would wake up real early and we're talking like five okay i don't know what i was thinking and you we were would thinking go down turtles yeah we were thinking turtles we had turtles on the brain and Who did, um, it was
0: the 90s <laughs>
2: <laughs> and we were like oh man we need a snack and like the like the biggest junk food item in our house at the time was probably like carob chips like they weren't even chocolate chips they were carob chips okay <laughs> like that's how bad it was at our house and so we'd like just grab a handful out of like the freezer and we're like yeah this is awesome and we would go down and watch the turtles and uh, <laughs> that's bleak nick <laughs> it is bleak right? <laughs>
0: when we when we had really exciting um sugar cereal, it was kicks. Oh, same oh, yeah, yeah, we were not no, no, no. like for us
2: it cereal. was checks. Like we would not mm-hmm. even veer into these slightly like <laughs> sugared mm-hmm. cereal. We would not like that compromise was not even made but mm-hmm.
1: um going to a friend's house where they had kool-aid and and oh like my Lucky gosh, yes. kool-aid and they had oh like flintstone God. vitamins Amazing. instead of
2: those weird nondescript chalky ones uh-huh. and, <laughs> i mean i could go down the list i mean what i'm saying is i'm not saying like cps should have showed up at my house but like <laughs> oh,
0: Nick.
2: i might have called them I'm, I'm 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 just kidding like my parents were like way ahead of the curve in terms of like environmental and you know we were They're from both Michigan elementary they teachers, were Michigan they? hippies they were about as hippy as Michigan gets yeah. so
0: crunchy i think we call them crunchy
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah 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 but uh in terms of the book really really good really interesting um goes back to like kevin eastman's roots of being like a much more sort of like scrabbly scribbly darker kind of toned comic just visually not in terms of like tonally but very different than what you would expect like for starters there's like three turtles at the beginning for like the whole beginning and there's this whole notion that like the turtles and master splinter are actually like reincarnated souls from feudal japan i'm not making this up (laughs) (laughs) oh yeah it's weird (laughs) read it end of story Uh,
0: yeah, I mean, this seems like something that if it the if the library had it and I had, like, everything else on my to-read list had already gotten knocked off that day, it could be interesting. Otherwise, I don't know if I'd want to tarnish my fond childhood memories. Like, I was babysitting a friend's kid and watched the really shitty new version of T that's on the TV.
2: Just call it TMNT.
0: Yeah. On TV, yeah, that's easy to say, right? Um but anyway, no, it's like the world's cheapest CGI and it's CG like one, and, yeah. yeah, oh my gosh, it's awful. And it's so dumb. I'm like, no, kid, we're going I opened YouTube and I'm like, you're welcome. <laughs> you know, put on What the, is this? This looks like garbage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he wasn't having it. He yeah, wasn't exactly. having it. What is that
1: principal <laughs> Chalmers moment in The Simpsons? Am I out of touch? No, it's the kids who are wrong. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <sighs> that's
2: that's, that's my life
0: at this point. I've I've hit that ripe old age of 30 where everything that teenagers are doing I'm just like oh I don't I don't know what that means and I don't want to know. Anywho, I think the big thing for him, oh, okay, going back to the turtles, the new action figure toys, of course, they purposely made it, so you can't just bust out, as the parent, you can't just bust out your turtles, because kids like, that doesn't look like them, we're like, shut up, yeah. and so you have to get, the, and so it's like, well, it didn't look like his toys. I don't know, whatever. Kids and their <laughs> turtles, am I right? I, oh my, goodness. my nickname when I was little was Katie Turtle, because I was super into the turtles.
2: Wow, this sounds like you need to be reading this book. Jeez,
0: <laughs> I um, stopped being into them once I hit like first grade and or kindergarten. I don't know, young enough that I don't really remember this. But my mom, I apparently kept coming home from school like in tears because the boys would only let me play April. And, yeah, and I was just like, whatever. I'm not playing turtles anymore. I hate it. And that's that's what boys but are for. I hate for. the color yellow <laughs> when
2: I don't want a future career in journalism. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well she's yeah okay anywho moving on from my childhood trauma what did you read i don't want to be played by megan fox
2: in the future
0: (laughs) oh god yeah um that oh talk about creepy um i also read saga this week shut up nick i read saga this week i got caught up i read volume six and seven thanks library um it was fantastic. I thought I was really happy. I actually finished listening to last week's podcast in the car on the way home last night and was so happy that you guys brought it up on the show last week. Um Tia was talking about the mom in that in that comic and how I can't think of a single other example of a mom that's allowed to be a terrible mom and also we root for her. But yeah, she's just bad. Just bad. Both parents are just too self-obsessed, but I love them and that comic is heartbreaking. The
2: Have they have they talked about, like, a possible end for that book? Has that been... Yeah. I mean, I realize yeah. we're on volume seven now, so, like, they've, is that being discussed? They've said
0: that... Yeah, Vaughn has said that he knows the end, uh, implying that it's coming in the nearest future. Uh, every
2: writer says that. Okay. <laughs> yeah,
0: okay. You are not wrong. You are not wrong. But I feel no, no, like... I don't know. Like you look at the issue sales, and they're not like you're like, oh yeah, this book's winding down. But then if you look at the um, graphic novel sales, sort of images, biggest books, it's right there with Walking Dead. Where like, who even well, Walking Dead is the one I'm going. Who even buys these anymore? But yeah, Uh no Saga. Every time a new one comes out, before it's even out, the pre releases outsell everything else, and it's just like, good god. So, it has a huge following. So, maybe what he means is I know the end for in 10 years when I decide to retire <laughs> on my sweet, yeah. sweet saga royalties.
2: My, my favorite writer trope is when they always go, um, I wrote the ending first, okay?
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. okay did. I think the much more realistic is the writers who admit that you, you come up with an ending and then a bunch of endings in between. So, when you need to get cut off. Like, if if it gets canceled. Yeah, exactly. And that's actually a mark of a good writer who knows what they're doing in comics because they're like, yeah, I know how to adjust this at any point so that it can have a satisfying conclusion as a series. It Um, is weird
2: to think that we're sort of in an era of comics, and I think this is true of media as well, like TV as well, but you really don't have those abrupt weird like cutoff moments that you used to see like with comic arcs or with with tv shows where like all of a sudden like you know halfway through a season or something it would just like end and you'd just be like well, yeah. that's no closure no closure whatsoever
0: um i mean there's still shows like- that end on cliffhangers and then don't come back because they don't Make it off the chopping block, or something happens like that. Sure. But yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: I mean, like you can definitely tell when something's hastily thrown together as an ending when something gets cut off, and like, well, in two issues, we're going to try and close up all the loose ends. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah.
2: Exactly. You're welcome. We one episode. Let's do this. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, it was actually Scott Snyder that was talking about that about how he writes comics having. S- hmm. set ending points throughout and then he has like a huge overarching thing but then he's like yeah I purposely set it up now knowing like okay if I need to cut it here if I need to cut it here and he was on a panel with it was all it was an image horror writing panel I think and so it was like that's Ray Fox very, was up that's there very too very
2: specific it
0: was the best it was at C2E2 a few years ago it was awesome but 'Cause he was talking about witches and Fox was up there. That was when Intersect was still coming out mm-hmm. and it was the coolest. But anyway, they were like all like, yeah, not only like all these people who had written long enough are like, Yeah, that's what you have to do. Um What did you, so you didn't really go into what you thought about saga sev uh, volume seven, Tia. how did you think it it tied to everything else and related to the rest of the saga?
1: I really liked it. I thought that, you know, it just it continues to be i think one of the more nuanced books about war and family yes you know um and race and race i love just how there's never any there's never any exposition it's just like hey here's a meerkat family here's yep. a, a, another yep. freelancer they have two heads it out. you know yeah it just it it just um assumes that the reader is going to figure it out and i i like that i think that readers will rise to that level of like just 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 go with it you know and yeah. and and huge credit goes to Fiona Staples for making oh, it her art is yeah, so perfect it's just uh she makes the world accessible enough that they can have those kinds of crazy things happen without any real, you know, lead for the for the reader. They just kind of can go themselves.
0: And I love that it's a series that can truly, it's a story that can truly only be done by comics. It'd be way too expensive to do as a TV show, although we do know budgets are expanding, but still, it would be completely insane. You'd have to scale it back a lot. And then to do it as a movie would be too abrupt, even like a movie series, and... The visuals are such a huge component that is a book. Like, it's truly a story for the medium. It works so beautifully and only that way. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I like that there's never an easy answer to anybody's conundrum. Well... Ready for my rant of the week? Because this uh, made me oh. so mad. I'm gonna start right here, people, and tell you if you have not finished the current Hawkeye story arc, to get to Hawkeye number six is the, the last issue of that, and you plan on reading it, uh, pause for just a second, because the ending made me so furious that I need to say something about it.
2: Because,
0: oh and if you haven't read it, and maybe don't wanna waste your money,
2: <laughs> oh boy. Keep
0: listening. Oh, I, I, that's going a little far. That's probably a little extreme. It was just one of these things. Okay. So, what happened is this Hawkeye number one comes out, has this gorgeous cover by um, Julian Titino Teske, te, Oh my it's gosh like Tedesco or whatever? Okay. We're going with that. Tedesco.
2: It's, uh, um, I think. Well,
0: you said it, so now it's real. It's in the world. Um, And I pick up issue one because that's awesome. And I get get it home and it's. Interior art is nowhere near as great as that. It's Michael Walsh. It's not bad. I mean, they're still doing this thing where they try and imitate AHA's art for all Hawkeye books. And you're just like, really? Because <laughs> at this point, it's just uh, the poor man's version. Uh, um, oof. With Jordi on colors. So colors are good. She's always good. And Kelly Thompson writing. And Thompson, the first few, like first one or two issues, I'm like, I don't know if I'm going to keep going with this. At this point, I'm buying it with... Bio- Dedication to the character, not the book, because Kate Bishop is the bomb. And then it kind of hit its start. Like, issue three, you get a really good mystery going. And there's this whole thing, this missing girl that she was trying to find. Um, she finds, but it turns out she has, like, a totally different face. Like, she's had, like, total plastic surgery or something. And she does She's like, oh, I knew my sister's looking for me. I don't want to be found. She's at this big, glamorous party. She's, like, this L.A. socialite now or whatever, an actress. And... But all the mirrors in the house are broken, like someone keeps getting mad and smashing them kind of thing, and it's this whole big, like what's really going on, and so I'm really engaged for three, four, and five. Jessica Jones shows up to help, and there's all these other interweaving threads to this mystery, right, and different side things, but the, the big thing is this girl and what's happening with her, and... There, I'm reading into it all this subtext about um, you know dreaming of being beautiful and glamorous, but then when you get that, it's not you and you look in the mirror and you're horrified, you know, like this whole big thing, right? Turns out the reason she's upset is because what happened is she got turned into instead of like seeking out to change herself and then that that whole message. Nope, she got caught up in the inhuman mist, the Terrigan mist or whatever. Became an inhuman, and now the reason she doesn't like how she looks. She likes how she looks. She just is real upset. That sometimes she turns into a dragon, <laughs> just like, and it's basically like hulking First out, problems. like like it's a dragon that goes around eating and people and destroying stuff, right? And so I'm like really all of these cool subtexts that i was reading into it and all the you know messages of body positivity and all the interesting mysteries of what could have happened and how this mysterious society and what did they do to her did they create this are they luring girls in like this kind of thing? nope none of that's true just in humans just more marvel and humans getting jammed down your throat so this whole thing gets wrapped up in issue six where they're just like oh problem solved you don't have to hate yourself we can take you to whatever you know where medusa is and all those guys their little kingdom and they'll help you learn how to be a good inhuman problem solved wipes hands okay on to next thing and that's the end of the arc I'm like are you effing kidding me I was really mad so that was super disappointing okay listeners you can unmute your stereo (laughs) uh but that yeah I'm really really tired of Marvel doing that with that franchise so anywho end of rant so comics come out this week on the 24th of May And it looks like we are all looking forward to totally different things. So let's start with you, Tia. What are you looking forward to?
1: I'm really looking forward to the Mayday trade paperback. This is the mini from Image by Alex DeCampi with art by Tony Parker and Blonde. And it's like, you know, 1970s Cold War KGB spy stuff. And it's very sexy. It's very trippy. Alex DeCampi is amazing. I've been trade-weighting it, which I feel a little bit guilty about, but I really just can't wait to binge-read it. It's okay to trade-weight stuff. If you're buying it in trade, I don't think that's a problem. Well, you know, the way that sales figures are, the way the temperature is taken to see what's doing well and what's selling well, it's still pretty, like, Pretty much single issue direct market nonsense. So trade waiting, I I think I feel guilty about doing that with uh, creator own books because it, I I do think it hurts them.
0: <sighs> it just makes me so mad that publishers aren't getting with like when you see them cancel before even the far, first trades come out. Like with um what did it Mockingbird wasn't doing great in singles, and I'm like yeah because their core audience yeah. mainly reads trades. Like anytime something gears more female, it's gonna do better in trades. And it's just, yeah, I don't know. Look at Saga, <laughs> perfect example. You can make all the money off trades and merch. Well, that sounds cool. Is it that, is cool. When you say sexy, do you mean
1: rated M for mature? Yes. Okay. <laughs> <Uh-oh>. <laughs> it is Alex DeCampi. Okay, but she does uh, br- it so well.
2: Didn't she do the grindhouse runs? Yes. Yes. Of course.
1: Yes, she did. In fact, I was talking to her about that very briefly at Emerald City Comic Con a few years ago, and she was like, "I'm so annoyed that people don't think that women like this genre, like women like it. We just don't w- like being I- the I- Yeah. So she's like, you know, so she basically was like, I would I'm going to show you what good grindhouse can be that everyone can like."
0: It turns out females can like sex too Just not being sex objects It's crazy
1: how that works
0: Revolutionary Well bring us back to Jesus Nick It looks like you're looking forward to a Christian comic <laughs> Named Rapture <laughs>
2: Nice one that was good Touche Um <clears throat> No I'm, I'm afraid that this doesn't seem To have that much of a uh, At least traditionally uh, conventionally Religious message but um yeah, this is a new uh, mini series slash as dar- as a uh, valiant Valiant likes to call them a standalone event <laughs> where it's literally just one book. There's no tie-ins. There's <laughs> it's nothing an event. else. It's
1: like an issue. Oh, well, this is the. Yeah, yeah. this is. I know what you're talking about. It's like Ninjak and Shadow guy. Shadow man. Yes.
2: Sha- <laughs> shadow <yeah>. dude. Shadow <laughs> guy. <laughs> yeah. Shadow person. Um, <laughs>
0: Listen, yeah. We are so, all shadow people.
2: <laughs> all i can think of is the uh from community the uh greendale human person yes. yeah. no. the
0: it's greendale human beings, beings. <laughs> yes. yeah. they're
2: the best. e anus <laughs>
0: yes exactly
2: <laughs> <laughs> if you don't watch uh, community just go watch it because i don't would hate for those jokes to go unexplained oh, um so basically yeah we have a standalone event it's four uh four issues matt kent is writing uh, miko suwayan i believe oh i'm sorry it's not miko suwayan it's kafu uh which is short for i think it's carlos angel Flo- it's a really cool awesome super long name which he then decided to shorten to a really cool awesome uh shortened <laughs> abbreviation mon- yeah it's like oh my god uh I wish I could do something co- like cool like that with my name, um, but there are no vowels in my initials. So, um, parents, future parents out there,
1: when you're naming your kids,
2: uh, first off, don't make their initials anything stupid or vulgar. Uh, th- use you know common sense, and then secondly, like make it something cool. Um, yep. Anyway, uh, Nick White's okay, parenting so, advice aside, uh, yeah, so yeah, this the, is basically back, valiant uh, attempting to do fantasy.
0: How is this different than a one shot?
2: Um. Well, it's it is a series because it is four books, so it's. Oh, I it, thought you said it was just one. This is issue one. Sorry, that's that's what I was. Yeah. Oh, so this is oh issue I thought one you meant there was
0: only one book. Okay.
2: Yeah, and um, they're calling it a standalone event, um, because it is roping in different parts of the universe, but like
0: okay. as opposed to a mini series, which would be presumably its own. Thing
2: like smaller scope, I would say. That's like, yeah. I mean, welcome to weird comic book vocabulary, people. Everything's hard and fast.
0: They're all marketing terms. They're flexible. Yeah,
2: exactly. Yeah, we haven't really seen that much Shadow Man for a while. Uh, He was one of he was a very early uh, introduction. In terms of Valiance rebooting back in 12, but we haven't seen him for a while. And that's mainly because he's been trapped in the, God, what is it called? The Shadow Land, the Shadow Verse. Um, it's something like that. I honestly can't remember it. And so Matt Kent's going to do this book that's supposed to bring him back. And it's supposed to, uh, he says, quote, You know, I grew up loving Conan and Lord of the Rings, but I haven't really gotten a chance to develop my take on that kind of genre. Uh, So he says It's interesting to take that grounded sensibility And apply it to some crazy fantastical ideas Exploring heaven and hell, gods and demons Um, So we're getting Shadow Man again, which is great We're also getting the new Geomancer Tama From the 31st century The one that was brought back During the Valiant, we're gonna get to see more of her Which is fantastic, because we haven't seen her for a while Um, But if anything else, the big draw for me is JG Jones covers, and JG Jones is yeah. great. And I know you've been appreciating his covers on Batwoman, Batwoman. Yep. so I am ordering all of the covers he's doing for this run. So very
0: nice, very nice. Well, I for one will say I'm really surprised. I didn't think you liked Matt Kent. So yeah. <laughs> good on you for trying something. I, I'd like to think See how maybe it goes. One
2: like percent of his income is like <laughs> just directly me. tied
0: to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> probably at this point. <laughs> Well, I am looking forward to The Old Guard number 4 by Greg Rucka and Leandro Fernandez. I won't go too much into it just because I haven't read more than the last time I talked about it on the show. I still have to read number 3. So I will say this series is awesome. We've talked about it a bunch. If you like Greg Rucka and you like awesome things, you should probably check out this book. This is, if you'll recall, the one about immortal warriors throughout time and they make this little band. Mm -hmm. So...
1: really
2: great panel work really creative panel work fantastic color work and
1: also if you don't like Greg Rucka and also awesome things you should probably rethink your entire life I'm just (laughs) gonna put that out there Tia makes a solid point
0: Did you know that May is Lupus Awareness Month? Lupus is often confused with HIV and cancer, but it is not like or related to either of them. Lupus is not like HIV. In HIV, the immune system is underactive. In lupus, the immune system is overactive. Lupus also is not contagious. You cannot catch lupus. Lupus is not like cancer. Cancer is abnormal tissue that grows rapidly and spreads in the body. Lupus is an overactive immune system attacking healthy tissue. Both cancer and lupus treatment can include chemotherapy, but they are very different diseases. To find out more about lupus and how you can help, please visit the Lupus Foundation of America online at lupus.org. So this week on the podcast, we are talking about comics as a subversive art form. And so first to unpack that a little... We don't mean subversive in the weird, gimmicky marketing sense that it's come to mean in pop culture. Uh, Subversive came about as part of academia uh, lexicon in the, what, 80s with postmodernism and became more and more prevalent. It was one of those things that then leaked into mainstream stuff and started getting overused by, like, advertisers and public relations and all that junk. So now every... Music art, well, not every, but you know what I mean. Art is, it's become overused. So we're kind of dialing that back and talking about the more traditional sense of what it's uh, meant with subversive meaning against existing power structures. Um, if you, you may have come across this when you're talking about politics as the other big sense of, as opposed to art subversion is p- political subversion. And I think they're pretty closely linked. Um, where Where did you guys want to start with this? What I think, Tia, you have the most academic background in art. Do you want to jump in with
1: where you're coming from with this? Sure. I am thinking about it in terms of uh, hegemonic versus counter-hegemonic. To back up when I say hegemonic, I'm basically talking about the dominant Social and political structures that we all have to exist in. And so things either serve or reinforce those ideas or they are counter to them, right? So hegemonic, counter hegemonic. And there is something that happens with subversive material, and you touched on this in your introduction. Some academics call this reification where there's a sort of uh, a way that the hegemony absorbs them and then they lose their subversiveness. They lose their counter hegemony. They lose their power to resist the hegemony. So um, when we're talking about subversive things, I'm specifically trying to think about things that are both counter hegemonic and resist that that absorption and okay. so what I think is uh, important also to keep in mind about this is it assumes there's a need for subversiveness that there's an oppressive hegemonic structure against which art needs to declare itself and so when we're looking at this gets really tricky when we're looking at to, uh, token diversity I think is a really great example right yes. so uh, we have a very kind of, uh, I don't know, a homogeneous kind of culture where certain kinds of people are more able to succeed than others, and so, uh, we say that we would like more representation in our art, but what does that really mean? Does it mean having Nick Spencer write Black Captain America? I would say not so much. Yeah, not even. You know a what I mean? And so um, you know, that's a great example of of reification where on the surface you might go, but diversity, but then once you dig into it a little bit, it's actually not subversive at all.
0: Right, and same with like having a bunch of straight people write our LGBT characters yes, exactly. and stuff like that.
1: Yep. Now something that would be subversive perhaps is maybe having Roxanne Gay write Batman or Iron. you know what I mean like mm-hmm. why you're like oh hey like another problem here is like you know they wanted to do this Black Panther spin-off and they you know they wanted to have a, a an authentic voice so they hired a you know black woman to write this character and it's like well okay i'm good for you but like when you also think of her when you're brainstorming who's gonna write the new you know superman or the new captain america book then you get a cookie yeah
0: (laughs) yeah um it's that keep pushing keep pushing i yeah i would say comics as a medium as a whole is very um very bogged down It's still in the white male cis stereotypes, the codes and images of comic pop culture. I mean, that in general, it's a visual medium, so it's going to have a lot of co- coded imagery and stuff like that. Like, that's just part of how it works. But some of when we're talking about subversive is pushing back against those. Um in, in the way you're talking about and I think there's always that argument that comes out where like well why don't you come up with your own heroes instead of changing mine you know like when you have the new Hulk who's Asian and you have Sam Wilson as serving as Captain America and all the thing, and people get so upset um and there so there's the Roland Barnes quote is isn't the best subversion to distort the codes rather than destroy them and that's yes exactly the point is like if you no one if you're doing your separate thing they don't see it it's not in conjunction that's not really subversive i mean no it's
1: counterculture
0: yeah exactly which is a, a whole different thing it's not saying it doesn't have value it has a huge amount of value absolutely just a totally totally different thing how about you nick where did you start thinking when you saw this on your list and started rolling around in there with all your turtle stuff
2: <laughs> I saw right. you put
0: turtles as an example and I'm like, oh, you gotta talk about it.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's it's kind of it's 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 an interesting one. I mean, it sort of gets into the question of um is all satire subversive? Is some satire subversive? Um and as as both of you were discussing, and I think the really, really tricky part is Am I being shown something that is truly subversive? Or am I getting something that's been reified and has been absorbed? Uh, perhaps the rough edges have been sanded off and the it's been repackaged and it's been represented to me mm-hmm. as something that, you know, oh, this is counterculture. Or as I call it, it's the Steve Buscemi, you know, hello, fellow kids, yeah. you know, moment. Yeah. It's basically, you know, the, someone trying to be hip and, and wise and, and attempting to to re, to you know, to continue to, yeah. you know, yeah, exactly, to continue to, you know, basically make money and m- continue to make you a part of big co- corporate culture and, uh, um,
0: well, I think that's the to-
2: really tricky part. And I think consumers, I, I mean, I'm, I'm optimistic in this regard most of the time, not, but I think I'm really optimistic that a lot of consumers have gotten pretty wise and are pretty good at sniffing out you know, when this stuff is being bartered or sold to them as, you know, oh, this is real edgy or this is really challenging social or cultural norms or this is really attempting to do something revolutionary.
1: Are they, though? Um, I mean, people are so... (sighs) People's critical thinking, I don't know, is keeping pace with the amount of information that they have to evaluate on a daily basis. Especially now that
0: there's so much... Crap sources of information out there, like people. I don't know. I think that I,
1: fake news and Instagram influencers mm-hmm. are all the proof I need to think yeah. that there's maybe a reason to worry about the the um, critical thinking. Well, I think some people I, are culture. aware of
2: what's going on and they don't care.
0: Yeah. So yeah, I th- going to your to your um, satire piece, I like the perfect example of not all satire is subversive and often can be super reinforcing of that. Hegemony is um, again with Nick Spencer with his Sam Wilson comic oh God, where that he's making awful. fun of um, what he calls social justice warriors, right? And he's like, "Well, you know, you you know, I can't be mine point out flaws." I'm like, "It's not subversive if the people you're mocking and shitting on are the
1: disenfranchised." Like that was the worst. And then he had Sam ver- apologize for it. Yes. Like oh, this it was is so why bad. This is why it doesn't count your diversity quota to have Sam mm-hmm. Wilson as Captain America when shit like that happens.
0: Mm-hmm. And yeah, yeah. So that that is the perfect example of satire um reinforcing the hegemony. And that happened all the time with feminists too, right? Where oh, you totally. make the feminist as like the, the caricature in your comic and
1: and yeah. every time you have a cool girl who's not like those other girls, it's like, oh, oh Jesus, I hate a that stereotype. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah.
0: So that's but, uh, yeah.
2: In in terms of the turtles, bring it back. Bring it back. Hashtag all turtles. I wanted to talk about the turtles. Okay. Uh, <laughs> oh,
0: they have um, color color band diversity.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, not at the beginning They changed that, and they didn't at the beginning. Oh yeah, because the they were
0: black and white. That's how you told them apart with their weapons.
2: Right, but they also all had red bandanas at the beginning.
0: Well, yeah, like, on the cover. But, like, the comic itself was black and white. That's why they all have different weapons. Or am I completely misremembering this? And that's why they, like, never put them down.
2: I think in terms of the original run, I think you've got this Yeah, right. I'm a little bit blurry on that part. But the, whole in- the, the part that I find kind of interesting is that the original run was basically meant to be sort of joking, kind of making fun of like all of frank miller's like really dark stuff that was kind of before it went way over the edge like in terms of like now but back in the 80s you had his like ronin and you had his daredevil run which like was some really really dark like really unrelentingly bleak stuff which just later basically rolled into his his batman dark knight dark knight returns dark Whatever it's called anyway And so basically they just went ahead and they said What if we more or less did like really like ninja gritty shit But it's just turtles Um, And I think what's interesting is not so much the Whatever minimal amount of subversion and satire is there But then the fact that it went from being this thing That was more about making fun of Frank Miller To basically turning into this global worldwide Phenomenon that's now you know mass culture and mass media and um, sort of lost yeah. that original that original well, edge, whatever how much of an edge it was. So I think it's more valuable as sort of an example of how something can you know, get. loses that original context yeah. and it loses that original um, place fixed place in history relative to other things.
0: That's very true. Yeah, I think in general the easy way to tell, like, okay, subversive is against, it's a disrupting existing structure, so you look at who is subverting whom, what is being subverted, and if what's being subverted is the um, not dominant culture, then it's not actually subversive, right? So, like, like right. you're saying, like, now, of course, that, well, turtles are just watered down to not even, that's not even a question, but I think when you're looking at stuff, it's like, oh, well, this is, you know, edgy in this way, I'm like, is it edgy in a way that the you're challenging the pe- the power the existing power or the uh, counterculture. Uh, okay, well there's in your the answer. same way
2: I sort of think of like Judge Dread in terms of what it okay. originally was versus what it became, and especially the British version of Judge Dread versus the American version of Judge Dread. Um, Americanized anything the is awful.
1: Let's
0: be real. Let's be honest with ourselves. Anytime they're like, we need to make oh. we need to make a sanitized American version in English because american they audiences it can't otherwise. handle oh they won't watch it yeah. and we're like yeah Ugh, okay
2: but um for those who aren't aware like if you want to talk about subversive judge dread is perfect if you want to talk about this crazy dystopian i don't know if i i mean it is sort of it's like a fascist dystopian future um where all of the streets are now named after like celebrities, and and you know this Judge Dread is this figure that everyone is supposed to root for. He's the protagonist of the book, right? But he's also as you know everyone knows he's the judge, jury, and executioner. And when you mm-hmm. think about that, like what does that say for like a future legal system? What does that say about due process? Um, what does that say about um, having to exist in a world? that's like that and then like after you read a couple issues and you're like man i sure hope judge dread smokes the baddies and then you're like wait is judge dread the baddie
0: it's so easy to fall into yeah yeah and
2: and i think that that's i i mean i think it's amazing that what's crazy is so many people either missed the boat with that book or they understood what it was doing and willfully ignored it And of course, it turned into this Sylvester Stallone movie in the 90s, which was, you know, definitely not like a British, you know, satirical take on consumerism, on culture. Um, It was obviously an action movie. And they were like, Judge Dredd, as a visual character, looks interesting. Um, His world looks interesting. Let's just roll with that. And I think you saw a a little bit more of a tongue-in-cheek look. Um, that observed inward a little bit With the, I think, 2012 Carl Urban movie But again, um, and, and the same thing goes for the dread title in America Which tends to be more action-driven In they're getting better But it's definitely not as much of a Isn't this kind of a weird, fantastical world we live in? And of course, we won't even get into the whole, like Judge Dread and, and I think they predicted the whole Trump thing years and years ago but um, yeah
0: well like um, you're getting to the it was it was originally very much which is a A very common way of um, doing subversion is by showing the logical conclusion of events and ideas, right? So you see this Mm -hmm. in literature a lot with sci-fi books like 1984 and The Handmaid's Tale, stuff like that, where you're dramatizing a wrongness and often without offering a solution, you're just showing this is where we're heading, this is how this works, this is what this looks like. And I think that's what Judge Dredd at least started as, right?
2: Yeah, and it also just shows the natural progression of what happens when a, a property you know changes hands in terms of manufacturers, oh, yeah. and in terms of who's making it. Because here you go with this title that's being made for Two Thousand AD, which is a, a big publisher in, in the UK, but it's small fries compared to um, you know IDW now. So, and in terms of what's that you know what that's done to the book, but um, no, I I think Dread is a fantastic. Great example, because if you aren't actually thinking about it, you won't even realize that it's, you know, he's, is he the hero or not? Anyway, so that's a good example.
1: Um, Kate, you had on your list Lumberjanes, which I actually think is a
2: It's Tia's perfect, favorite book. Well, we'll start with that. I
1: mean, but here's the thing. Being able to recognize that a book is good or productive or useful without personally mm-hmm. liking it, I think is an important... to do you know what i mean like Mm -hmm. i don't particularly enjoy reading lumberjanes but it's a pretty subversive book in that it takes all of these things that are sort of considered outliers or outsiders of mainstream comics and it made a hit book out of them
0: yeah it's a kid's book that's inclusive of lesbian relationships, and it has scouting minus the God thing, and it has little girls not minding getting, like being actual real little girls instead yeah. of these weird feminist idea, or sorry, anti-feminist idea of them, where it's like, oh, well, they, they just wanna, you know, bake cookies and, you know, pick up, I'm like, nope, these they're normal kids. You know, they run around and do their thing. Um, And you'd think that can't be that subversive, right? Like our society's at a point where that's not that abnormal. Um, Actually, the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund has an entire helpful page dedicated to this book because it's challenged so often, mainly for the LGBT content. In general, that's why the the big hotspot for books getting challenged at this point. Um, And that's just horrifying that they and it's i mean like it's a kid's book they hold hands you know it's well i like, think
1: that's why it's considered subversive because yeah. you know the dominant narratives of lgbt uh relationships in our culture is that they're adult is that they're right, somehow very i mean scandalous. we still have this core to that idea that they're inherently hypersexual which is just right. nonsense yep yeah so so the the way that this book makes LGBTQ stories for kids, but also plenty of adults love this book, you know, yeah. like that is subversive. Because I would argue that not all, I'm on the fence about Judge Dredd, basically. I, I, okay. I don't know. I think that not all antiheroes are necessarily subversive and not all dystopia is necessarily subversive
2: yeah I mean I I, I agree with you but I would say I think the original like I'm talking the black and white Mm -hmm. comics that came out like every week which I think I think is something that a lot of people don't necessarily think of when they think of you know dread that's that's largely the one I'm I'm thinking of, and I think in this day and age, as we talked about all the way at the beginning, you know, certain comics tend to lose their edge a little bit, and maybe Dread has lost its edge a bit because... Maybe we're kind of living in that now. I guess to some extent, or maybe. Um, hey,
0: money, money buys uh, justice, doesn't it? I mean, look at yeah, look at your legal odds if you're rich or poor. So yeah, I think it's pretty
1: relevant for me. I think it's. I mean, I say this a lot on the show that I think you know media and and comics and and entertainment that you know the texts that sort of live that we live with they both reflect and produce. Right. Cultural narratives. And I think that something like Judge Dredd is reflecting cultural narratives, but I don't necessarily think that it produces them, whereas something like Lumberjanes is producing a subversive cultural narrative. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's.
2: You're saying dread is more of a mirror than it is, uh, in uh, sort of a guidebook for how to rebel, a
1: driving force. And it kind of goes back to what Kate was saying that, you know, there's this genre of dystopian sci fi where no solution is offered. And I'm not saying that that necessarily Mm. can't be subversive either. I just think that um you know the idea that you know the justice system is corrupt and that we're a celebrity obsessed you know f- money obsessed culture like well yes thank you captain obvious
0: yeah it's right. it's that showing the the logical conclusion of that like this is where we're headed it's and it's yeah i think subversive at least the way we're we're not even going about me thinking about this career like the way it was taught to me in college, right? So like, have I <laughs> have I questioned that and thought about it more? Not necessarily, um, but that yeah, the subversive at least the way I was taught was like it has to be intentionally trying to destabilize or overturn existing power structures, not necessarily with a solution in mind. And often with but when you're talking postmodern literature, it's it doesn't have a solution, right? Uh, and s- often it has
1: real dreary endings. <laughs> and so far we've only been talking about story. And I think there there's That's also true. an interesting conversation to have about form. Like, you know, the Ray, the Ray Fox fan club over here I, oh, for sure. I think <laughs> could make a pretty strong argument that what Ray Fox did with Intersect was intensely subversive in terms of form. And he has another yes. book Oh, God, is it Oni? I think it's called The People Inside. I have no idea. Um, Mm, I haven't heard of that. In any case, I think that Ray Fox does really subversive things with form. And so that sort of backs off of this like socio-political discussion and just kind of looks more at aesthetic discussions and and then it swings back around i think because eventually you have to think about well okay but like what is it what does it achieve to use subversive aesthetic and subversive form mm-hmm. yeah what it, is it to stabilize yeah i mean to rebel yeah. against, like it pushes
2: like, li- the literary standard and the, yeah. the, the artistic standard and you what know what does that have you it know? pushes
1: um, it pushes p- people's ability to engage with a text and they t- think critically which brings you back to the original idea of socio-political subversiveness. Right. So,
0: well, and with art, I think the, the go-to when you meet someone hears subversive art, the go-to um, places, the, the real obvious... Poli-
2: violence. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah.
0: gosh, you guys went a totally different place than I did. <laughs> Holy crap.
2: Wait, what? No. Where were you going? I was
0: thinking political cartoons. Jeez, oh. guys. Oh, like, political satire cartoons? Well, but I mean, I
1: think that sex and violence and money are probably at the heart of most politics anyway. Well,
0: yes, but I mean, like, using the art itself, and so, like, that exaggerated caricatures and using um, the art to show maybe the interior as exterior, the way we do with political cartoons, like, right now, all the Trump drawn as a toddler, um, that kind of thing. But that those, I don't think, are what we're getting at with comic books, because those are... A standalone thing coming is a specific event or person or thing, right? And I think you get that sometimes in comics, but not often. Like, there's the... There was a book called Tales from the Old Testament that came out in, what, the 80s? I don't know. I, I ended up with it because Humble Bundle did a Neil Gaiman bundle, and it was part of that because he had some stories in that. And there's... Some of it is purposely super obscene and offensive um, to Christians, right? And very mocking and all that stuff. But there is one story that he and Dave McKean did in it. And they did this when they were, like, in their early 20s, they young guys. And literally just took a Bible story, wrote a script from it using the words in the Bible, and drew it. But it's one of those stories that we don't ever talk about or uses exa- you know, one of those things that, like, when you're cherry-picking what is a good example from the Bible, you just leave under the rug. And so people were wh- horrified and super offended, right, to the point where there was death threats and so on and so forth. And I, that's, I think, an interesting way of using art to subvert in that you're literally, it wasn't a character. I mean, D- McKean's art is gorgeous, but they're not caricatures. They're He was literally just drawing what was described. But it's one of these things you're not supposed to look at. This isn't the story of the pastor with his flock from the Bible that we see illustrated constantly. These are, this is a different
1: story that we don't talk about constantly. Yeah, it goes against the dominant interpretation.
0: Exactly. And it it basically made visual something that we don't look at, uh, very purposely avert our eyes from. If we're people who want to look at the Bible and actually say it's a great thing in its whole, that kind of you have to willfully look away from some sections then and i think that was an interesting way of using art to force people to look at and think about a section it's oh god i don't actually remember it's it's the one where the there's two prophets and the one one's a false prophet and one's the other and because he listens to the false prophet who said god told him something he gets struck down and yeah it's a whole thing but anyway um i i think that's an interesting way you see obviously charlie hebdo comes to mind with Draw, drawing another, obviously, images of Muhammad we're not supposed to look at, although they, if I recall, they were also wantonly offensive images. Yeah, of I
1: mean, is it subversive no one to be <sighs> no, one, no one should get murdered
0: for that. But he, no, yeah, I definitely I think that might. might not be considered subversive.
1: Needling people isn't necessarily subversive. Definitely not, especially a religion that it. You know, I know that people are like, "Oh, terrorists, blah blah," but like Muslims are pretty uh, the vast majority subjugated are. in yeah. Western culture. and so I just I don't know that it's subversive to poke at that necessarily.
0: I think I, speaking so. Speaking of Muslims, going to Miss Marvel, yeah. I think the way. Taking taking Captain Captain Marvel, who's always been traditionally blonde and often you know in a bathing suit and all that stuff, um, and taking her and turning her into, her into a Muslim uh, teenager has been awesome. But also in the art side of that, she sta- she ends up in a lot of power poses where you really see her strength and. And she is a hero and she is super strong And she is going to save the day And you get that whole, like you were saying It doesn't just reflect back the culture to itself that You're giving a new image, just exactly. like Lumberjanes yeah. is doing But at the same time, the way the artist has cho- chosen to frame panels And to center, like that kind of thing I think really shows her more more than just the text does In, in her power, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, you know and she's dressed modestly and she you know yeah she looks like a teenager she Mm -hmm. you know I get so that's a huge for me I get so annoyed I forget who is the creative team on the Young Avengers before the Gillen McKelvey Young Avengers but I literally can't read it because I get so angry like Kate Bishop looks like straight out of a porno oh gross you know and then you contrast that like and I am not a fan of the hip cutouts but at least uh, AHA gives her like a teenager you know she's like kind of bottom heavy and has a flat chest which like Mm -hmm. and she wears flats yeah yeah it should not be subversive to draw a woman superhero in flats but here we are yep
0: I think Persopolis for me is another one that comes to mind um of showing little girls as little girls yeah, and then how the dominant culture is acting upon their bodies and uh, this is by uh, how do we pronounce her first name Mar- Mar- is it Marjane Marjane I don't know I think, I think Marjane right. yeah yeah and satrapi it's very subversive of the Iranian political system and its treatment of women and I think it's more powerful because she's talking about herself and her friends when they were little girls and you see them there's you can't Oh, well, you know, women in their wanton ways when you're talking about like eight year olds and they're Mm -hmm. little and they just want to be little. And then suddenly
1: they find themselves in, you know, burqas. Anyone Um, talking about eight year old or I mean, honestly, any any conversation in which men are talking about how women destroy them with their sexuality? Like, it has nothing to do with women.
0: It doesn't. So that, that book very much is the whole point of that book is to induce dissonance and cause change, right? And I think that's that's a good one. And then, God, the most recent dust up in comics with the whole X Men Gold number one art.
1: I don't actually know enough <sighs> about the nuances of that political situation. Mm.
0: Mm. Well, that this is one where it's like it it count. I I I would say it counts as subversive, but. To, to a thing that I don't agree with. Um, so it's Adrian Saif's, our, he's Indonesian, it's an Indonesian political message, and it's the blowback against the dominant political um, party in the country right now by people who want that to be changed to being only um, Muslim, right? That they are using the passage from, that they're interpreting to, from the Quran to say that, uh, you should not have Jews or Christians as your leaders. they are not your friends um, which you can that, it's one of those things where like yeah, and other people interpret it way differently so but there's been big protests and all that stuff in Indonesia against this trying to get the ruling so yes, it is it is subversive against the ruling par, the ruling class right in um indonesia also in the u.s i'd still consider that like okay christianity is still the dominant one here so i i don't know i also definitely don't agree with his message but i would say that it's
2: subversive art he definitely subverted what marvel wanted him to do (laughs) yeah Um, if you want to talk about using marvel's comic to basically like you know as a as a mouthpiece for his you know own ideas that's definitely
1: No, I mean... And
2: then, then of course, they went back and they dug up the fact that he had done this with other books (laughs) when he worked for DC in the past, too. And it's like, whoa. People are still going through his stuff trying to find more. It's kind of crazy.
1: Harnessing the big two to get your political message out there in a sneaky, secret way is pretty interesting. And
2: what he is... Yeah. What he is getting at is sort of my... One of my bigger points, which is like, I think there are certain ideas. I think there are certain... Uh, cultural um, thoughts out there that if you go ahead and you put them in an image book it's one thing and if you go ahead and try to get them into a big two book that's a completely different thing in terms of subversiveness Um, because I mean obviously at image you can more or less go ahead and get away with anything and do anything and your audience is God, I don't want to say this, but, like, I think image readers a lot of the time are more on the up and up with being more informed with, like, what sort of books they're getting into and what sort of things they're purchasing. Well, you don't have the people Um, that
0: have just had it on their pull for 20 years.
2: Exactly. It's not the autopilot DC people where it's like, I've read Aquaman for 40 years and I'm going to keep reading Aquaman for 40 years and it doesn't matter who's on it and it doesn't matter what it's about. I'm going to read it. And these people are real and I don't necessarily mean that that's terrible. I'm merely saying that they exist
0: I think small press I've has, met them yeah small press has historically been a lot more supposed versus too just because when you're talking about speaking mm-hmm. truth to power usually the existing big publisher power structures don't have think a place for that Publishers yet. Yeah. are
2: not like hold on
0: let me give you your own thing so and you're talking about like in the 70s with women's comics which is the all women creator anthology and was really focused on uh, feminist concerns as well as homosexuality and sex and politics in general um their their number one issue was the first ever comic strip featuring an out lesbian, and then you had like the all Negro comics in 1947, which is a single issue small press American comic book, was just the first known comics magazine that was all written and drawn by African American writers and artists. And I mean the the big big one was the Montgomery story, right? The comic book about the um, bus boycotts that was edited. Like he didn't, um, Martin Luther King Jr. didn't write it, but he edited it and like made some changes and then okayed mm-hmm. it. But the big thing was that the back was a, um, a section called how the Montgomery method works and ha- which was the blueprint for a passive resistance. And that talk about you know, subversive uh, text that then elicits change, that was huge.
2: Yeah, definitely, definitely.
0: Because it was a cheap pamphlet, you know, like you basically go out there and get in the hands of lots and lots and lots of people. I don't know, we were talking to an extent earlier about this, Tia, um, with, does does it matter if, the, does the eye of the beholder matter for sub- it, it to be subversive or not? If you're just telling something to the people who already agree with you,
1: mm. is this is a really subversive? It's a really big question, and I think that it just points to like, a fundamental difference of philosophy when when thinking about you know uh, theory and the best way to to look at texts and and mm-hmm. contextualize them. I personally don't see a lot of benefit in the eye of the beholder or the or looking at things on an individual level. That just doesn't do anything f- in terms of um, like when you weigh that against more macro. Structures of power. It's like, you know, uh, the example I always use is, you know, um, if your quote unquote empowerment looks like or acts like the tools that are used to systematically oppress your class, then like good for you, I guess. But <laughs> yeah, that's not, it's not, you know, it's not really going to do anything to further the solution to the to the problem that makes you have to seek out that empowerment in the first place
0: thanks for listening to the i read comic books podcast this episode was produced by mike Rappin with editing by xander riggs special thanks this week to nick white tia vasiliu and kate scotchless the music in this episode is brought to you by the wonderful Infinity Shred. You can find Infinity Shred at infinityshred.com, as well as on Bandcamp at infinityshred.bandcamp.com. If you enjoy this show, tell someone about it. Rate us online. Write to us. You can email us at ircb at And if you want to talk comics with us, find the I Read Comic Books group on Goodreads. We have a monthly book club that we feature on the show, and we have regular threads about what comics we've been reading. If you want your thoughts on the book we're reading to be read on the show, make sure you join our group and comment. You can ask us questions and comment on each episode on our subreddit at ireadcomicbooks.reddit.com. The entire podcast team is on Twitter, and you can follow the show at IRCBpodcast for updates and ridiculous retweets. But a great way to experience the podcast, including our back-issue bin of episodes and our weekly pull-list posting, is to visit us on our website at ircb.us. Until next time, from all of us here at the podcast, thank you for listening. We did it without you, Mike. We made it.